Hi, Casey here. Before we start, our team at PassBlue wants you to know that we're a nonprofit website and we depend on your generous donations to tell stories about the UN. In November and December, PassBlue takes part in Newsmatch, a national matching gift campaign that drives donations to nonprofit newsrooms, like us, around the country. Here's how it works. Starting November 1st, Newsmatch will double your donation up to $1,000. For a nonprofit like us, this is a big deal and will help us report exclusive stories at the UN every day. The type of journalism we do that puts accountability first cannot wait. Because if we don't tell these stories, who will? Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Filion. And welcome to Unscripted. Today... The UK takes the president's seat of the Security Council with a focus on reminding the UN of the importance of ordinary people in peace operations, while trying to forget about the Brexit chaos at home. This is the eighth episode of Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. This month, Britain is the rotating president of the Security Council. As a P5 member, this is business as usual for the country. But Stephanie, ongoing instability at home is changing Britain's role at the UN. Yes, and that's a topic that the UK seems to want to avoid as much as possible. But as the question of how Brexit will affect the UK's place at the UN is very important these days, later on we'll chat with UN expert Richard Gowan, who is conveniently from Britain. The UK mission didn't want to answer any question about Brexit during our sit-down interview, but here's what Ambassador Karen Pierce had to say at her press briefing earlier this month about it. Point one, the United Kingdom doesn't have problems. It has a democratic process on Brexit, for which there's now a plan, and there will also a deal reached with the European Union, uh, and there is also a British general election. Point two... British diplomacy is alive and well, thank you for asking, uh, and thriving and hopefully going to have a successful and productive presidency uh, of the Security Council uh, in November, underscoring uh, our responsibilities uh, as a permanent member. Uh, point three, uh, in the UN, we recognise that the UN will be an even bigger stage uh, for British diplomacy uh, once we uh, leave the European Union. Uh, we want to make the most of that. We want to help the UN thrive and prosper as it comes into its 75th year. We want to keep the UN at the apex of the uh, rules-based international system, uh, the multilateral system, and we want to put our shoulders to the wheel on all the big issues of the day, uh, partnering with those who don't agree with us uh, on certain issues as much as those who do. Uh, so it's a big task, but I don't see any signs that UK diplomacy... Uh, is in any way uh, hindered um, by anything, to be absolutely honest, except possibly the recalcitrance of some members of the Security Council. Uh, but that was always with us. So while the UK wants to avoid talking about what's going on at home, as council president, they're zeroing in on how international peace and security impact ordinary people. Stephanie, what does that look like on the ground at the UN? That's exactly what I asked UK political coordinator David Clay. He's number three at the mission in New York and sat down with us because Ambassador Karen Pierce wasn't available. He's been working in New York for about three years and was posted before in Egypt and Libya. 
the UK's focus on civilian is a recurring one for the country. And at first, I was skeptical because aren't civilian and ordinary people what the UN is all about? I asked David Clay about it, and here's what he had to say. The, the people should be at the uh, the core of what the the UN uh, the UN does, um, and you know I think we w- we wanted to um, re-emphasize the importance of the UN's role in um, in serving the the people um, during uh, presidency. Um, so I think one of the uh, one of the ways that we will look to do this is through the our section of, um, of briefers for the meeting. So making sure that we um, bring to the fore the um, the voices of civil society during our presidency. Um, but I think also uh, in looking at how we um, how we address particular issues um, in the um, in the council, making sure that we're considering the effect of the council's decisions on ordinary people. So what's on the Security Council schedule that looks at ordinary people? There was a closed meeting on the use of chemical weapons in Syria with the director of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. It's based in The Hague and does independent investigations for the UN. The council was briefed on the status of chemical weapons in Syria that has affected thousands of people in the country during the civil war. Here's the UK's explanation on the meeting format. When we were looking at... um at the format we would choose um, for this meeting, there were a couple of things we had to bear in mind. Firstly, we wanted to promote a an interactive and frank exchange. Um, and sometimes uh, having meetings in the open chamber does not necessarily encourage um, a frank and an interactive uh, exchange. But at the same time, we did you know, we did feel that it was important that there was a degree of transparency um, in how we were approaching it. So we you know, wanted to find a format that um, would allow other UN member states um, to observe the meeting, and in the case of Syria, to speak at the meeting should they um, should they wish to do so. So that was why we went for that uh, particular format. As you know, the the regular format for the Syria chemical weapons meeting is usually in closed consultations. But we thought because the the DG was there, we wanted to shift the format a little bit just to provide that extra level of transparency. So Stephanie, what else is Britain focusing on this month? There will be an open debate on sustaining peace and international security, and another one on the G5 Sahel. Something else to watch for is Cyprus. It's a former British colony, and they still have military bases on the island. The Secretary General is supposed to meet with Turkish and Greek Cypriots at the end of the month, and the Security Council has a meeting on the conflict there on the same day. And the UK has a special role in this. It's one of three international guarantors in the process, along with Turkey and Greece. But Theresa May, when she was Prime Minister, said she didn't want the UK to be a guarantor anymore. So we asked the UK official, David Clay, what the UK government position is right now and what their next move is if the Security General meeting is successful. Um, I'm not going to comment on the government's um, position on the issue of being a guarantor power. As far as the meeting um, is uh, is concerned, you know, uh, we are sort of examining how it will work with the meeting with the um, with the secretary general. Um, we want to you know find a way that uh, the the council is able to support the the secretary general. Um, I think we'll have to we have to see how the secretary general meetings with the um, with the parties go, and then we can um, look at potential follow up after that. And another former territory of the UK that's on the schedule this month is Somalia. Here's what Clay had to say about why the upcoming meeting is especially important. So this is the the regular three-monthly meeting on uh, on Somalia, and um, 
I think what we're hoping to use the meeting to focus on is to look forward to um, the next year's um, elections, to sort of take stock of where um, Somalia is on its preparations for the elections, to consider how ANSOM and the UN system can support um, Somalia um, most effectively in the run-up to those elections. But obviously there are a variety of other issues that I'm sure council members will want to um, want to discuss. But from our perspective, we're quite keen to um, focus um, attention on the elections preparations. And Yemen is also on the agenda. There's an ongoing war and a new peace agreement with Saudi Arabia to end the power struggle in the south of Yemen for now. Of course, Saudi Arabia's role has been criticized, but also other countries' involvement. In September, a UN report said that France, the US, and the UK may be guilty of warm crimes in Yemen because of arms sales to Saudi Arabia. And even though the UK criticized Saudi Arabia for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, some said they don't have leverage because of the weapons sales. So I asked David Clay from the UK mission how the country balances its economic and political relationships with Saudi Arabia, considering their records of human rights abuses. So I think what that relationship enables us to do is to have frank and honest conversations with Saudi Arabia about um, a range of issues, um, certainly including Khashoggi, um, um, but also you know we have a very sort of deep dialogue with them on uh, on the situation in uh, in Yemen. Obviously, Yemen, Yemen is something that we're going to be discussing during our presidency of the Security Council, and you know Saudi Arabia will be an important um, part of any political solution in Yemen. So it's important that the UK continues to discuss this issue with Saudi Arabia and to um, to, to use the close relationship we do have with um, with Saudi Arabia in pursuit of that um, that political solution. We'll be right back. Support for Unscripted comes from the Institute of International Humanitarian Affairs at Fordham University. This fall, they're offering online humanitarian training courses. Topics include forced migration, managing or negotiating humanitarian responses, and more. Courses run from October 21st through December 1st. Or earn an international diploma in humanitarian assistance. It's a four-week intensive taught by practicing humanitarian professionals in Geneva, Switzerland, from November 17th through December 12th. For more information, email miha at fordham.edu. So shifting gears here, there's an election coming up in the UK, and you can tell when talking to the diplomats that they really don't want to say anything political about the country. It's understandable. So Stephanie, you asked about Boris Johnson. (laughs) Yes, I did. As you may remember, Boris Johnson spoke at the General Assembly this year about how technology is rapidly changing the world. And his speech was unique, to say the least. In future, voice connectivity will be in every room and almost every object. Your mattress will monitor your nightmares. Your fridge will beep for more cheese. And every one of them minutely transcribing your every habit. As new technologies seem to race towards us from the far horizon, we strain our eyes as they come to make out whether they are for good or bad, friends or foes. AI, what will it mean? Helpful robots washing and caring for an aging population or pink-eyed terminators sent back from the future to cull the human race. 
Stephanie, I think this might be my favorite speech ever given at the UN. I think it's hilarious. And GA speeches usually aren't. Do you think he wrote it himself? Well, from my own experience covering politics, I assume someone wrote it for him. So I asked Clay about the mission's role. Um, I mean, I don't think I'm, I'm revealing any state secrets when I say that you know, the prime minister writes his own uh, writes his own speeches, um, and so they, that was you know, very much the um, the perspective of the uh, of the prime minister. Um, I think um, that you know you can choose a, a range of different approaches um, for speeches um, to the the general assembly, um, and I think you know to be um, to be memorable. I think often um, you know, focusing on a on a particular subject um, can actually be a more um, you know a more effective way to to make a difference to your speech than um, than covering a, a broad range of issues. I think there are um, you know uh, advantages and disadvantages on on both sides. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm sure that was that was something the the prime minister was um, considering when it um, when he was drafting his speech. No way, Boris Johnson writes his own speeches. Too bad his speechwriting days could end if he loses in the December election. After yet another missed Brexit deadline, have the UK diplomats been particularly sensitive about the issue? There was definitely an elephant in the room when I met with the UK mission. They were adamant. Do not ask about Brexit. So we talked to another Brit about how leaving the EU is going to impact the UK's influence and work at the UN, and more specifically on the Security Council. I'm with Richard Gowan, is a UN expert at the Crisis Group in New York City. So Richard, the UK mission wasn't very enthusiastic about talking about Brexit and how it's going to affect the country's role at the UN when I met with them. In a way, it's normal. They're here to promote their work as, pre- as president of the Security Council and not really to discuss British politics. But I really felt discomfort when I met with them any time I pronounced the B word, Brexit. What do you think is the general feeling at the UK mission and the British Foreign Ministry in general? Do you think they're exhausted of the whole drama, are they ashamed, or just constrained to talk about anything? I think that British diplomats in New York and elsewhere, have to be very careful discussing Brexit, in part because an election is coming, but also because the key discussions about the future British-European relationship um, play out in Brussels. And even quite senior diplomats in New York or elsewhere in the world don't necessarily know all the ins and outs of those discussions. So I think... It's not surprising the UK is cautious. And I would add to that that I think the British mission to the UN, uh, UCMIS, as it is known, has done a pretty good job since 2016 in terms of projecting a continued commitment to internationalism and multilateralism, and also working with other European countries, especially France and Germany, uh, to ensure that you know, there's still a a pretty strong European presence here. Contrary to the fears of some observers that the UK would break relations with the EU quite quickly. So this presidency, and I emphasize on the word could, be the last one before Brexit happens. Under Article 34 of the Charter, the UK still has to inform and support other EU members on the Council. When I talk to UK diplomats, they still seem to believe that they will be aligned with Europeans after Brexit. 
Do you think it is a mutually shared perception on the European side? A lot of European diplomats actually joke that the UK has been a better partner uh, at the United Nations since the 2016 referendum than it was before. Uh, British diplomats historically have always been wary of surrendering their freedom of manoeuvre for the sake of EU coordination. But you know, wanting to show that they remain a good partner, uh, the British have actually been quite studious about working closely with the EU over the last three years. And I think that French diplomats, German diplomats and others hope that this sort of good cooperation will continue after Brexit. Now, obviously, the UK is going to have to nurture relations with other powers, and there's a long British diplomatic tradition of prioritizing relations with the US. But right at the moment, uh, London often finds itself closer to uh, other European powers on issues like Iran or the Middle East peace process than it does to Washington. And that means that there's also a natural tendency for the UK to stay closer to the EU27. Do you see any scenario in which Brexit could kind of end up empowering the UK at the UN? Or is it just a bigger opportunity for France to have a bigger role as the sole permanent member on the Security Council representing Europe? Brexit clearly creates diplomatic dilemmas for the UK, but it does also create a dilemma for France. France will, in all probability, uh, be the sole permanent member of the Security Council from the EU uh, six months or one year from now. And that will give France some extra credibility in Security Council debates. However, uh, there are a lot of voices in Europe arguing that, as a result, France should actually focus more on representing EU positions and less on its national positions in the Security Council. You hear a lot of German politicians in particular talking about the need to Europeanize France's seat. And that makes Paris nervous because there are some issues, such as peacekeeping in former colonies like Mali or the Central African Republic, where Paris very much wants to retain its own national policies and not bow to an EU consensus. So I think France can take advantage of Brexit at the UN, but actually the French make it quite clear that they also want to keep working closely with the UK too, uh, because they see that they have some common interests in, in the UN as well, separate to their interests in the European Union. So talking about national position, uh, can you think of any specific issue uh, the UN on which the UK could take a very completely different stance after Brexit, uh, after it's not, it doesn't have to kind of align with the EU on these positions? Traditionally, British diplomats have been a little irritated that the EU as a whole can be more cautious on human rights, uh, for example, than uh, the UK wants to be. And it is possible that after uh, Brexit and after the transitional period, the, the UK will be a little harder line on values issues at, in, the, in the UN because it won't be constrained by the EU. That said, uh, if you look at the UN now, uh, we see China rising, we see a lot of non-Western powers uh, rising in importance in the organisation. 
And one of London's priorities after Brexit will be to sign trade agreements, not only with the US, but also with Beijing, Delhi and other capitals. And you hear a lot of diplomats speculating that you know, the UK might like to talk more about human rights, but actually it will have to soft pedal those issues for fear of offending uh, the Chinese um, or other non-Western powers, or even the US. So it's not absolutely clear that Brexit will liberate um, Britain in UN diplomacy. It may actually make the UK have to be more careful uh, while it's negotiating other priorities and especially trade. And talking about China, um, can you put maybe Brexit in a more global context uh, on UN dynamics? Maybe with like the China's growing roles that we just discussed and the US changing approach towards the UN and Russia's confrontational approach uh, to the UN. I think the, the overarching political narrative at the UN at the moment is the emergence of a new bipolarity and uh, a new sense of friction between the US as traditionally the most powerful state in the organization and China on the other hand uh, which may be an alternative leader on issues like climate change. This is in some ways a great challenge to the Europeans including the British who believe in a rules-based world order but it's an advantage for the Europeans too because a lot of other countries African, Latin American and others uh, are actually nervous about both US policy under Trump but also about China's rising influence and they are looking in many cases towards Europe as an alternative pole, if you will within the organisation now for the time being the UK remains close to the European Union I think that moving forward the UK will find itself in a difficult position because on many issues it will tend towards the US, on others it will stay close to the EU, and on some issues like climate change it may feel that it has to prioritise relations with China. And so I think that, that the UK out on its own will really have to make some very difficult case-by-case choices on, on who its allies and who its friends are. So now maybe looking at the more shorter term, uh, there's an election that is going to take place in December, on December 12th. Uh, How do you think that this specific election is going to affect uh, the UK's role at the UN? It could have quite a dramatic effect because the outcome of the election is very uncertain, but it might deliver a a right-wing conservative government that would look at the situation we describe and decide that it needs to move closer to the US at a higher speed. And that would break some of the good cooperation with the EU that we've seen so far. On the other hand, we could have a strongly left-wing administration led by Jeremy Corbyn coming into office. Uh, Corbyn, I think, is an internationalist who would stick closely with the UN. But I think he's so far to the left that I sometimes tease British diplomats that they may have to join the non-aligned movement or the G77 and um, spend their days promising solidarity with Venezuela. So we're looking into the distant future of Brexit, but even in the short term, there are massive uncertainties. So we'll watch this election with a close eye for sure. Thank you so much, Mr. Gowan. Thank you very much indeed. This episode was produced by me, Casey Candela, with help from Brianna Lyman and reported by Stephanie Filion for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulce Leinbach is our editor, AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. 
A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And Pass Blue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights to the Trump effect on the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. Pass Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Pass Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends.